Hi everyone, my name is Drew Ray and this is Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. This is episode 39 where we go back to Boston 1919 and one of the weirder accidents we've covered on Disastercast. We've dealt with pilot defenestration, spontaneous combustion and exploding Death Stars, but we've yet to tell a story involving a lethal 15-foot wave of molasses. The Purity Distilling Co. was a manufacturer of industrial alcohol. Alcohol is an ingredient in all sorts of chemical processes, but particularly in the manufacture of munitions. I'm not a chemist, but as far as I can tell, either alcohol isn't used directly in any explosive formulas, but it is used to help convert explosives into useful forms such as powders. Anyway, what's important in industrial alcohol isn't the taste, but the quantity. So Purity Distilling had a very big tank near the Boston dockyards. When I say big, I mean... 50 feet high with a diameter of 90 feet. It towered above the adjacent buildings and it wasn't pretty. Apart from being, you know, a big sheet metal tank, it was painted an ugly shade of brown to hide the leaking molasses. Some reports say the leaks were so bad that workers and local residents used to stock up on molasses in the same way that third world villagers gather oil and petroleum from crashes and broken pipes. And local kids used to scrape sticks along the sides to make sweets. Now, just for the record, 2.3 million gallon tanks aren't supposed to leak from the seams. When the tank was first built, it was supposed to be tested by filling it with water. But the first shipment of molasses was due and the test was never conducted. This was just one symptom of the whole construction process, being overseen by a financial manager with no technical expertise or support. Essentially, the tank walls were too thin, and there were too few rivets holding it together so it couldn't withstand the load it was expected to hold. The project manager had no expertise to even read the blueprints, and the city had no reason to regulate it. They had rules for buildings and rules for bridges, but no regulations for giant tanks, so it wasn't their responsibility. According to an analysis after the accident, the tank was insufficient for the steady-state pressure of a half-full tank. Now that doesn't take into account variable pressure like that caused by filling or fermentation or other gas buildup. On top of that, the sheet metal was even thinner than this plan specified, and the riveting was shoddy, as evidenced by the leaks. So we have a tank that, by design, can only hold half full at best, and then it's not built as well as it's designed. We don't know exactly how the tank failed on 15th of January 1919. It had been filled and refilled numerous times, and the dynamic variation in the load would have fatigued both the joints and the metal sheets themselves. There had also been a sudden temperature change from a bitter Boston winter worse than minus 15 degrees Celsius to a relatively balmy 4.5 degrees. There may have been some fermentation in the tank as a result, enough to raise the pressure, but probably not enough to cause an actual explosion. The rupturing tank certainly rumbled like an explosion, and the popping rivets were reminiscent of machine gun fire to the recently discharged veterans working on the docks. Large pieces of the failing tank were thrown at high speeds, smashing houses and fire stations and part of the elevated railway. There was a wall of molasses travelling at 35 miles an hour, and it carried a shockwave of air before it, sending people and carts tumbling and almost tipping over a rail car. The molasses wave itself was three metres tall. 
Several square blocks around the tank were reduced to rubble, and molasses was two to three feet deep, even several blocks away from the accident. Inside this mess, there were heaps of dead horses and 21 human fatalities, mostly people who drowned in molasses. Molasses is both highly viscous and a non-Newtonian fluid. Specifically, it's what we call a pseudoplastic fluid. It flows more readily under high stress, but when you take the stress away, it settles into something that's dense and sticky. You can't swim in it. It's not just hard to swim in it, it's physically impossible to swim using a swimming stroke. In theory, you could move through it with something like a boat propeller, but otherwise you need to pull yourself out using something or have someone else pull you out before you drown. The rescuers included 116 Navy cadets from a nearby training ship, the crews of three minesweepers, and 80 men from an army hospital. The war was just over and people were very good at reacting in crises. So even though there were 21 fatalities, there were 150 people who were injured but rescued, and probably many more who were saved without serious injury. So it could have been a lot worse. The parent company, so Purity Distilling was owned by a larger company called US Industrial Alcohol, blamed anarchists. They claimed that Italians had put explosives inside the tank, and that's what caused it to rupture. Everyone else, and there were a lot of different lawsuits, blamed US Industrial Alcohol. Eventually it was all combined in a massive class action lawsuit that decided that the direct cause was structural failure, and the main causes of that were poor design, poor construction, and poor oversight of the design and construction. The tank had been built in a hurry in wartime. Its life extended beyond the war, though. Cutting corners in 1915 may have seemed justified, even patriotic under urgent requirements for munitions manufacture, but it had consequences in peacetime four years later. Despite the size of the tragedy and the unusual nature of the lethal liquid, there isn't a lot written about the Great Molasses Disaster. I could probably tell you a little bit more about the cleanup, the court case, or some of the individual victims, but otherwise I've given you pretty much all of the available detail. Let's take a moment and think about what we do and don't know about the causes. We know that the construction was shoddy, but this can be fully explained by material shortages and time pressures. None of these pressures could be removed. The best anyone could have done is put an opposing force into play. Despite how it may appear in contracts and financial disputes, the immediate customer is seldom a strong technical opposition to a contractor. As a project nears completion, both parties have a vested interest in on-time, hassle-free delivery. The customer project manager looks just as bad as the contractor if they refuse to accept a finished product. In a number of ways, they then appear responsible for the project failing to meet its deadline. That's why this becomes as much a question of safety management as it is a question of engineering. There was no need for safety analysis of the molasses tank. The hazards were understood and engineering analysis was totally sufficient to determine if they'd been successfully managed. What was needed was not an expert in fault tree analysis, but someone to stand there and ask the dumb questions. Um, 
That's an awfully big tank we've got there. How much molasses are we putting in? I presume someone's checked the calculations, right? You have? Wow, I never knew you were an engineer. You should have told... You aren't? Do you think maybe you should get some advice from someone who is? Maybe someone who's built a tank before? Maybe we should get City Hall to look them over too? No, actually, I don't give a flying fructose what the building permits say. I say we need an engineer from City Hall to approve our 13,000 tonne syrup stack. Because they're the people who are going to be responsible for the cleanup, and they're the people who are going to blame us. Asking these questions isn't a technical job. It's a people-person job. Someone who has the skills to play friendly and to play hardball. The savvy to know whether to be friendly or hardball, and the authority to carry it off. One of the real problems for modern organisations is that authority often comes from domain experience, with the key term being experience rather than expertise. So someone with 20 years service in an industry is not going to take kindly to either gentle hints or stern warnings coming from a newcomer or an outsider. On the other hand, 20 years' experience seldom comes hand-in-hand with an understanding of modern safety practice. Even worse is when a safety department consists of a self-selected portion of the workforce, and they're self-selected either for lacking ambition or being attracted to rules enforcement as a daily job. The very best safety professionals, of course, are self-selected in the other direction. They've got deep domain expertise, but they select themselves for a continuing desire to stay up-to-date with their safety knowledge. Now, I don't mean they need a Safety 101 training course to do their job. Instead, they go to conferences or participate in standards committees or in part-time higher education. They read new books or papers, and they listen to podcasts. Hey, welcome, friends. Shout-outs to Gareth, Hope, Stephen, Karen, Valerie, Michael and all the other safety professionals listening. At best, I can work out that that's about half the audience. So the rest of you either find talk about risk and safety relevant for your work anyway, which is great, welcome also, or you just like hearing stories about disasters. In which case, thanks for choosing this podcast over other forms of disaster-based entertainment. That's it for this episode. It's been a little shorter than usual but I'm kind of busy. My reading this week has been entirely drafts of student projects. Nothing I can discuss in detail, but they'll be submitted in a couple of weeks now, and I can tell you about some of the really interesting findings. Coming up on the next podcast, though, a program that's been in the works since even before MH17, looking at airliners being accidentally shot down. It's a topic rich with conspiracy theories, forensic analysis and second victims dealing with active rather than passive fatal mistakes. Till then, keep safe.